Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 38 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. The world is waging war on all kinds of battlefronts, from kinetic wars in Ukraine to spiritual wars in the NHL. The common theme among all these wars is the promulgation of lies and deceptions that are designed to hide inconvenient truths and promote demonic agendas. Because God wants us to know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, he is assigned the burden of delivering the truth to the world to those who follow his commandments, or at least want to follow his commandments, which these days are a select and shrinking group of Christians. It's we Christians who bear the burden of truth-telling, regardless of whether anyone wants to listen to us or not. That's one of the themes of this podcast. We are a small voice in the wilderness that's trying to equip the saints of God with new tools with which to evaluate the deceptive and misleading information that's assaulting us from every direction. Too many people handle information on a piecemeal basis, meaning that one piece of information is treated as an isolated bit of data in their lives, which they can place wherever it seems convenient and emotionally satisfying to place. They compartmentalize information so that they can lead compartmentalized lives, free from the burden of facing their own contradictions or their self-created hypocrisy. Mental compartmentalization separates ideas from each other so they can remain in their own unique safe space. Compartmentalization of our thoughts does not require one thought to be connected to another, especially if a thought connection would challenge the truth or legitimacy of one or more of the thoughts. For example, Lots of people think abortions are just fine, not because they have thought too awfully hard about what an abortion is, but because they might want to have an abortion one day, or they might want to justify someone else having an abortion. Abortion is what they want, so they make a compartment for it. We can't reason with such a person about whether having an abortion is a good idea or a bad idea, a right idea or a wrong idea, because it's an idea that has its own compartment, and no other compartment is allowed to intrude into it. There is no integrated hierarchy of knowledge to which an appeal can be made. But that's not how God intends for us to think, and he certainly did not intend for us to live a life based on compartmentalization. There's nothing in reality that's separated and compartmentalized from everything else. Everything is integrated. Even when the people who compartmentalize their life think they have some things integrated, they mostly don't. People who support the idea that men can become women, for example, think they have integrated science with their transgender thoughts because some people, who claim to be scientists, support their desire to embrace the feminine. But those self-proclaimed scientists are lying. They are not scientists because science is a discipline with an integrated hierarchy of knowledge that's founded on empirical observations, measurements, and deductive reasoning. That's what gives it a certain kind of power and authority. The science that supports transgenderism is not really science at all, but philosophy that masquerades as science in order to kidnap the credibility of science, all while compartmentalizing the philosophy of transgenderism 
to keep it from being too closely examined. Philosophy, you see, is not science, even if it incorporates some elements of science. Philosophy is just someone's idea about how some aspect of the world works, why it works the way it does, or even how the world should work. They are two different things. Science is constrained by facts. Philosophy is constrained only by the creativity of the mind, which is why most political and social movements are philosophical and not scientific. They incorporate emotional desires more than scientific measurements. Philosophical musing is not how God wants us to order our thoughts, because he knows it's deceptive and it hides lies. See to it, said the great Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The Colossians lived in a world dominated by all kinds of different philosophies, which Paul correctly points out have, at their root, demonic influences. God, on the other hand, wants us to adopt an orderly integration of knowledge, which is why he implores us to reason with him. Mental compartmentalization holds people captive to demonic ideas, so the best way to destroy our learned compartments is to construct orderly hierarchies. This is what the Bible does, and what science is supposed to do. They both establish a set of truths by which information can be evaluated in the context of all other available information. If we hear something and don't know if it's true or not, then the first thing we should do is seek out the highest level truth that governs it. For example, when evaluating whether abortion is right or wrong, the highest level truth that governs that evaluation is that God is sovereign over everything. God is the ultimate truth. God created life and said life is good. That's a truth. God established each of our lives at conception. That's a truth. God prohibits us from murdering any other person at any stage of life, another truth that requires all of the preceding truths to be true. Murder is the deliberate taking of an innocent human life, whether directly or indirectly. Developing babies are both innocent and human, not because of what they can do, but because of what they are and who made them. Yet another truth. In this hierarchical example, it can never be acceptable to conduct an abortion on a living baby or cause one to be conducted because every subordinate truth must conform to the requirements of the superior truths above it. This podcast is about discovering the highest level truths that can help us make good if difficult decisions in our lives, all of which involve understanding how the world is actually constructed and how it really works. We've seen over the last 36 episodes, or is it 37? I, th I think it might be 37 that the world is at war, and it has been for a very long time. A high truth of this war is that there are fundamentally just two sides to it, God and his spiritual forces on the one side, and Satan and his spiritual forces on the other. God is fighting to establish the good elements of existence, which are holiness, love, peace, humility, kindness, self-control, and eternal life. Satan is fighting to maintain the evil elements of existence, which are corruption, pride, arrogance, hatred, conflict, cruelty, and eternal death. Another truth is that the war is being fought both in the physical realm and the spiritual realm, and the spiritual elements of the war can and do affect the physical elements of the war. Finally, another important truth is that human beings are simultaneously both the tools through which the war is being fought and the ground that is being fought over. 
That is the big idea into which all the details of our earthly lives can and should be properly ordered, because everything that happens on the earth and in our lives can be understood in the context of this great and continuing battle. So for the past few episodes, we've been examining certain physical elements to this battle that were designed to adversely affect our overall health and welfare, or soon will affect our overall health and welfare. We've seen that the government of the United States is not complying with its founding principles, which are enshrined in the Constitution of the United States, but instead has been captured by a select few self-described elites in order to wage a great civil war, a covert, hidden war. Many people are involved in this war, but only some of them consciously know that they're prosecuting a war, and fewer still understand the true purpose of it. The targets of all this covert warfare are you and me. As it is a covert war, we are subjected to sophisticated misinformation campaigns by the prosecutors of the war to keep us ignorant of both the warfare activities and their inevitable consequences, and to encourage us to comply with the demands of those who wage the war, thereby making it easier for them to achieve their objectives. These misinformation campaigns are known as psychological operations, or PSYOPs. The purpose of psychological operations is, well, let's hear what the military has to say about it from their own recruitment video that was uploaded to the YouTube just last year. But before we do, we should understand that any time the Army, Air Force, Navy, or CIA use psychological operations in a theater, they are using it as a weapon. I want to be clear what's meant by the term weapon so that there is no misunderstanding. A weapon is a tool that is used to degrade or destroy enemy capabilities in order to take ground and hold it. Ground may be some literal ground, but it can also be political ground, social ground, economic ground, or spiritual ground. When we listen to military people tell us something, we should not just stop the thought process where they want us to stop it. When they talk about technologies, we should always consider how these technologies can be used as a weapon, because that's how they are going to use them. Not all battles are fought with lethal force on a battlefield. Military operations often require a more unconventional, non-lethal approach. One that uses the power of influence to strategically shape and change attitudes, values, and beliefs. So, the purpose of psychological operations is to strategically influence the target group in order to change their attitudes, values, or beliefs about something. The army narrator doesn't say what that influence is, and he's not going to tell us what that influence is because that would undermine its usefulness, but it's enough to know that the U.S. government, whether the army or another branch, is in the business of strategically influencing people to change their attitudes, values, and beliefs about something. Now, let's put that in the context of a weapon, because that's what it is. How could changing the attitudes, values, or beliefs be used to degrade or destroy enemy capabilities so that the purveyors of the influence operation could take some ground? Well, maybe the Army will give us some insight into that question in this video. Using their unique skills, they plan, analyze, design, disseminate, and evaluate actions and messages across a range of military operations. So they plan, analyze, design, disseminate, and evaluate actions and messages to come up with a plan to convince people 
to do something or believe something that the military wants them to do or believe, things that will not be in the best interest of the target group. Remember, this is a weapon, so it's being deployed to degrade or destroy some aspect of the target population's capabilities. And you and I are the target population. This is propaganda on steroids using a variety of highly sophisticated modern techniques and technologies. They are trying, in essence, to make it impossible for the target population to know the truth about something. They want them confused about the actual real circumstances that exist because they want the people to act against their own best interest. At the end of the clip, Mr. Narrator said this is being conducted across a wide range of military operations. No matter how benign PSYOPs may appear to be, no matter who conducts them, they are hostile acts whose purpose is to support a military operation through deception. PSYOP soldiers support commanders, U.S. ambassadors, allies, and other governmental agencies. Psychological operations, you know, that's the future of conflict. And there you have it. These operations support not only what we would recognize as standard military operations, they also support U.S. ambassadors, allies, and other governmental agencies. Let's break that down. Ambassadors. That's a clever way of saying that the United States government is supporting hostile influence operations in foreign countries. Maybe countries like Ukraine. Allies. That means we are helping friendly nations do the same thing. Nations like Great Britain, Germany, Poland, and even Israel. We might even throw in Australia and New Zealand, because, hey, they're the uh, practice areas. And then there is the mysterious other government agencies. What other government agencies are being supported by psychological operations? The CIA? The NSA? The FBI? Homeland Security? I bet you think it's illegal for the United States government to utilize influence operations against its own citizens. Influence operations that used to be called propaganda. Well, the government had been prohibited from propagandizing Americans by the Smith-Munt Act that was signed into law shortly after World War II. That law was passed in the ashes of the Nazi-created Holocaust because the leaders of the day could viscerally understand what government propaganda campaigns ultimately produce. It's kind of hard not to understand that when you're walking through the remnants of a concentration camp after World War II. But on July 2, 2013, the Smith-Munt Act was officially repealed by the U.S. Congress, opening the floodgate of covert influence operations conducted by the United States government agencies against its own citizens. All for our benefit, of course. And who was the president who signed off on the revocation of this important legislation? Why, it was Barack Hussein Obama. His name just keeps showing up whenever it comes to the great reset to old-school tyranny that is encroaching on society. Do not be deceived, God warns us in about a hundred different places in the Bible, hoping that these repeated warnings will be heeded by the usually clueless masses. He keeps saying this phrase because deception is the process by which we are convinced that something is true when it's really false, or that something is false when it's really true. Convinced! 
That's what it means. You're convinced. Woe, declares God, to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is deception, and God doesn't think very highly of it. If you are a Christian who is considering going into psychological operations, you might want to think about that little bit of information, given that the term woe is a declaration of divine judgment against those who deceive other people. It is a judgment of the moment when the deception occurs. It does not require a trial or a hearing, and it carries with it a promise that the penalty for the offense is coming. God warned his people not to be deceived, and he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to shine some light of clarity in the darkness of worldly deceptions, among other reasons. So if we want to be loyal to Jesus Christ, then we have a duty to examine what we are told and see if it's true and expose any deceptions that we discover. Most Christian-themed broadcasts focus on the inward shining of this light, a process by which we examine our innermost thoughts, attitudes, values, and desires to bring them into conformity with Christ. That's a very popular and a very important Christian theme. But if we are constantly fixated on our inner self and spiritual development, then we will almost certainly avoid dealing with the world. Since we are supposed to interact with a wide variety of people in the world, in a wide variety of contexts, all for the benefit of Christ, a constant obsession with self-examination may cause us to violate these instructions by becoming hermitized inside a self-constructed Christian bubble world. Some Christians even think that's our calling. We call them monks and nuns. These reclusive believers think it is holy and good to take the advice to be in the world but not of the world to the extreme of being out of the world to ensure that they aren't in it. But even regular professing evangelical Christians can effectively do the same thing just by committing their entire life to Christian activities with Christian congregations at Christian events with Christian friends. It's still living in a bubble. While we are clearly called to be separate from the world in the sense of not participating in the political, economic, social, and military system that was constructed to advance the agendas of Satan, not participating in that system does not mean, double negative, we are to live in a bubble, whether that bubble is a monastery or a church activities calendar. We are called to live in the world and interact with the world and the members of the world as unpleasant and dangerous as that can sometimes be. It's actually to our advantage to work alongside the world, because if we don't work with them on our terms, then the world will eventually come and find us on its terms. The powers behind worldly deception figured out a long time ago how to penetrate Christian bubbles in order to degrade the faith, deceive the flock, and destroy the word of God through misinformation and social pressure. But there's a way to avoid the consequences of a world that seeks to penetrate our bubbles. There is a military proverb that goes, The best defense is a strong offense. Every nation that depends on a defensive strategy for its survival will eventually fall to another power. Every such nation that's tried it has fallen. Defensive strategies breed weak, fearful nations, and weak nations produce weak men and weak militaries. Spiritual defense does the same thing. If we develop defensive spiritual strategies to protect our church organizations from the hostile spiritual elements of the world, 
then we will ultimately weaken our spiritual condition to the point where the churches fall to corrupt outside spiritual influences. And that is what has happened to our traditional church denominations. We did not take the fight to the world, but chose instead to stay behind the safe walls of our churches in a misplaced defensive strategy, just like the ancient Israelites stayed behind the safe walls of their cities, only to find that the walls could not stop the hostile forces arrayed against them. The walls of our churches are not physical walls, but spiritual ones. If our spirituality is weakened from within, then the walls of the church will not stand. Even churches that grow in size, influence, and wealth will become weak and fall to the forces of the world when their spiritual strength is undermined. No one becomes physically strong by hiding from stressful exercise. We can only become physically strong by embracing stressful exercise and pushing ourselves harder than we want to push. In the same way, we do not become spiritually strong by hiding our spiritual life from the world. Contrary to the way many Christians behave, Christ did not call his followers to a life of defensive holding actions. He called his followers to a life of offensive actions. The command of Matthew 28 was not, Hold on and maybe some disciple candidates will happen by. It was a command to go and take the battle to the enemy. It was an action word. Go to the lands that hate you and make some disciples. Go to your neighbors who think differently than you do and make some disciples. Go to the leaders who make decisions that conflict with God's will and admonish them to change. Go to the people who want to kill and maim and cheat and destroy and see if one or two of them will reconsider their ways. There are many churches that advise their parishioners to do these things, and that's fantastic. They should. But I want to take it a step further. While telling a congregation to go, what about the leaders? You leaders are the ones who are supposed to trailblaze the path. You are the ones who are supposed to get together with other like-minded leaders in the Christian community and formulate a plan of attack. Christian leaders are supposed to link together to form a more cohesive body of Christ so that the fight can be brought to wherever it needs to be brought. Church leaders can and should bring parishioners along, but you are the ones who are supposed to organize and lead the fight. Not to be needlessly harsh, but we live in an era when too many otherwise sound Christian leaders act like pacifists. They get their church and build it into their image of success, and they don't want to risk losing that. The only church leaders I see regularly banding together with other church leaders to deal with worldly problems are the liberal ones who organize to push the people of the world and their congregations further and further from the true word of God. And they are very good at it. They brainstorm with other church leaders, attend multi-church and multi-denominational planning meetings, and organize actions where they invent better and better ways to justify the most outrageous sins in both the church and in greater society. Have you noticed that the traditional church is dying in many parts of the Western world? It's because it long ago stopped its offensive operations and started waging defensive warfare. So why do I bring this up? Because we're facing an existential threat that is going to lead to the downfall of the church on this earth according to what the scripture says. That means our time is limited, so we have to do our job while there is still time to work. 
To be effective, we need church leaders who will take the fight outside the doors of the church, and there are distressingly few of them who seem inclined to do so. We are 38 episodes into this series, and I've been trying to make the case that the world is at war and we are its target. More than that, Christ is its target, and his followers are going to be targeted by governments all around the world, including our own. The spiritual war is driving a physical war, and those people and spirits who are prosecuting this war want a whole lot of innocent people to die, and soon, and they are not even bothering to hide that fact anymore. All they want is for the deaths to proceed quietly and without a lot of fuss, which is the value of psyops that generate confusion and keep people passive. These worldly forces of darkness are very good at emulating the values of Satan, including the murder of innocent people, and unless God steps in and puts a stop to it, they will successfully kill every single person on this planet. But don't take my word for it. Go read Matthew 24, verse 22. The day that Christ refers to in that verse is rapidly approaching, and it's the job of Christians and our leaders to recognize this day is approaching, figure out how it's approaching, who's making it approach, and warn our own parishioners and anyone else who will listen that it is approaching and tell them what they can do about it. If we ignore the creeping mass genocide and tyranny that is encroaching into the world all around us, then what is the point of all the endless sermonizing that we listen to? By all means, we should self-examine our own lives, but we also need to identify the poison that is spiritually and physically killing the people around us. If nothing else, we need to admonish our own people not to aid and abet in that poisoning. The mere thought of going on the offensive to combat evil on a state, national, and international level is probably going to terrify most church leaders. But that's what they're called to do. Now that's throwing a lot of responsibility somewhere other than at me. So what are we, the little people of the church, supposed to do? What responsibilities do we have? Well, basically the same thing. We need to talk about these subjects with our fellow Christians so that they know what is really going on and don't walk around in ignorance and darkness. No, these are not generally fun conversations to have, but I'm sure it wasn't a lot of fun getting nailed to a cross like our leader did either. All we need to do is sit around a table having a conversation while drinking some coffee and eating donuts. I mean, how hard is that? We need to encourage our church leaders to take a lead on these issues and not avoid them out of fear of offending someone. We need to support our leaders when they elect to fight back, and we need to do so in a visible and determined manner. We should volunteer to help with outreach to other churches and to other ministries that fight the evil of our day. We should form ministries of action and not ministries of bureaucratic paralysis, which honestly seem to plague a lot of churches. We could put together a PowerPoint presentation for our fellow church community members and others, for example, and conclude any presentation with concrete recommendations of how people can help in the cause. We need to use our numbers to leverage community actions. These are the same tactics the enemies of Christ use to corrupt America, so why shouldn't we use them to fight back for Christ while there's still some time to fight? Anyone who shops in a grocery store knows that there is a problem with our food supply, but what most of them don't know, including most Christians, is that food is going to be a real problem in the end times. That's something else we can talk about. In fact, 
Something about the food supply is going to be so important that it will separate the loyal, obedient Christians who will be rewarded by Christ from the disloyal, disobedient Christians whom Christ himself is going to fight. If that doesn't grab the attention of Christians, then I don't know what will. How many Christ-loving Christians want to be on the business end of Christ's sword when he returns? Yet that's exactly what he promises will happen to those self-proclaimed Christians who don't learn, discern, and affirm the warnings that Jesus so painstakingly provided to his church in the Bible. Are we in the end times? Well, how are church congregations supposed to tell if we don't examine what Christ told us about the end times and evaluate the times we are in to see how they match up with the times he describes? How are we going to recognize which food we are to stay away from if we're too scared, disinterested, or cynical to figure out where we are on the divine time clock so we can discern the warnings that Jesus gave us? Or do we just think that Jesus will forgive and forget even though we were too lazy or cynical to pay attention to his warnings? Yes, I think a lot of Christians feel that way. They feel that Christ's warnings don't apply to them because they are safe and secure. After all, that's what their theology tells them. Unfortunately, it's not what the Bible promises to professing Christians who are undiscerning, disobedient, and therefore unfaithful. Let's swing quickly over to Revelation to check that out. As we've been reading in Revelation these past few episodes, the second and third chapters are the letters to the churches. This is a fantastically misunderstood section of Scripture to many otherwise serviceable Christians, many of whom think the letters are historical churches in which Christ had a beef, or were historical periods in which churches generally made some mistakes, or were historical references that only tangentially apply to us today. The common theme is historical. But let me tell you, the first three chapters of Revelation have nothing at all to do with history. Like the rest of Revelation, they are future prophecies, and they align with certain texts in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 that speak about the events leading into the Great Tribulation. They are warnings to the future universal church that exists at that time in history, and they are given as instructions to the churches at large in that day. Now, someone is going to make up the churches of that day, so isn't it in our best interest to see if it might be us? Jesus gave two consecutive warnings to the church at Pergamos and the church at Thyatira regarding food, and both of these warnings align in the same order with passages in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 that concern food shortages and famines. The food shortages and famines are going to create a food problem that Jesus described as being food sacrificed to idols. In the Old Testament period, sacrificing food to idols was an act that was strictly forbidden in, to the Israelite Jews. Idols represented demons, so sacrificing food to idols was the equivalent of paying homage to demons. That's the analogy. Something about our food supply in this end time period is going to be equivalent to paying homage to demons or following the instructions of demons. It doesn't say what that is, and it only hints at how we are to recognize this problem, but it does warn that those who eat the food that has been sacrificed to idols will incur the wrath of Jesus Christ. The clue we are given is that the eating of the food will be promoted by the same Christians who, pro you know, people who call themselves Christians, who promote certain kinds of sexual immorality and excuse it with the blood of Christ. Sins like homosexuality, 
transgenderism, and fornication. These church members and leaders will also encourage their fellow brethren to eat the demon food. And what is demon food? I believe it's food that either incorporates a material that was demonically ordained or created under demonic influence for demonic satanic purposes, or it's a demonically influenced action that is required in order to obtain the food. In a period of severe famine and food shortages, people will be tempted to accept almost any food from any organization that has it, which will most likely be various agencies of government or organizations under governmental control. In times of food crises, most governments historically have seized the available food under the guise of centralizing food resources and protecting the public good. The government will then offer food rations back to the public, but the rations will carry with them some strings that Jesus absolutely forbids us to accept. It is a line that he says we must not cross. Maybe the strings will be a bioweapon disguised as a vaccine, an injection that we will have to take in order to qualify for food rations. That kind of strong-arm tactic will only work if there is a severe enough food crisis and at the same time our access to alternate food resources is extremely limited or non-existent. China gave us a preview of how that might be accomplished when it locked down its population due to the so-called COVID-19 flu. Here are some excerpts from a New York Post article dated April 9, 2022, entitled, China Leading Citizens to Jump from Balconies. Quote, For over two weeks, the financial capital of China, Shanghai, has been locked down tight. Some 26 million people languish in their apartments, staring at their now-empty refrigerators, unable to set foot outside to forage for food for fear of arrest and incarceration. Unable to protest their lockup any other way, people have taken to venting their anger by yelling out of their apartment windows. Most of their complaints have to do with food. We have no food to eat, they scream. We haven't eaten in a very long time. We're starving to death. As they did in Wuhan two years ago, people are once again jumping off the balconies of high-rise apartment buildings. Those desperate enough to venture outside in their search for food are hunted down by big whites, members of the security forces who owe their nickname to the white hazmat suits they wear. Patrolling the streets day and night, the big whites arrest and jail anyone caught breaking quarantine who often get beaten in the process, end quote. I also will uh, throw out that they have also erected fencing around these places so they can't get out, and they've even welded people into their apartments. These quarantine Nazis also destroyed backyard gardens to prevent people from eating their own garden-grown food. Tyranny practices whatever it desires to make perfect which always involves the control of people. Tyrants and wannabe tyrants around the world watched closely how China managed its population during this crisis so they could learn lessons that they might be able to apply at home in the future. You can see that under such severe circumstances, people get very desperate very quickly, and many people will be willing to do whatever they are asked to do to get some food. That's the idea that Jesus is warning about. 
but the string that is attached to the food will be worse than the problem, according to Jesus. In an era when the budding global tyrants are all but promising global famine, isn't this something we might want to be talking about in our churches, if not outside the churches? But what are the chances that this could really happen here in food-happy America? Well, let's hear a clip from a Stu Peters production that might give us some insight. Huge fire at a food processing plant. This is for Taylor Farms. By the time I got here, the building was engulfed in flames. We are on the precipice of a global food crisis. We haven't seen how bad this is going to get yet. I mean, everybody's talking about the cost of food. There's not going to be any food. You're seeing all the chicken places being burnt down and the processing plants being burnt down. It's just driving the cost up. As devastating as this is for Delhi Star and its employees, there's going to be an undoubted ripple effect that's going to make it even harder for the small town of Fayetteville and the families and businesses that live here. It's, it's going to get bad here pretty quick. He's saying a Cessna 340 twin-engine plane was traveling from around a local airport. Witnesses reporting the plane had veered sharply and crashed onto the side of the General Mills cereal plant here off Industrial Park Boulevard. How many of them have been set intentionally? You know, I mean, like it's, at this point, it's like almost not a coincidence that there's this many catching on fire. This is the second time in a week that something like this has happened. On April 14th, the plane crashed into the Gem State Processing in East Idaho. What's going on here? Well, the story gets weirder. Food processing plants all over the country seem to be catching fire. January 11th, 2021, Fayetteville, Illinois. Firefighters respond to the Delhi Star meat plant at 10 p.m. The 75,000 square foot facility with 100 employees was declared a total loss with no injuries reported. August 2nd, 2021, Hansville, Alabama. One of its 250 employees dialed 911 from a Tyson-owned River Valley Ingredients poultry plant at 12.35 p.m. 26 area fire departments responded in addition to the Alabama Department of Environmental Management. The ADEM cleared the site of any environmental impact. Total loss, no injuries. 21 days later, in Cobb County, Georgia, a fire raged at the Paddock Meat Production Company. At approximately 10.30, fire crews arrived and began aggressively fighting the fire. Crews continued to put out hotspots till the morning. The two-year-old building was severely damaged. No injuries. October 12, 2021, Caldwell, Idaho. Dairy Gold Milk Drying Plant. 300 employees. No injuries. Total loss. November 29, 2021, Scott Township, Pennsylvania. Made Right Steak Company. No injuries. Total loss. December 13, 2021, San Antonio, Texas. Wisconsin River Meat Plant. 55 employees. No injuries. Total loss. February 22nd, March 16th, March 20th, April 13th, America 2022. No injuries. Total loss. Somebody has to be doing it on purpose. So I can't say that I don't believe in coincidences, but I don't believe in dozens, if not hundreds, of coincidences happening at the same time. Someone is destroying our ability to manufacture food. Since most of us are no longer farmers, that's a big problem. The fact that no one has been injured in these fires is important because if there are no injuries, a criminal investigation is not required. And surprisingly, no criminal investigations have been conducted at any of the several hundred food production fire sites in the past two years. 
Someone obviously doesn't want to find something. But there is an explanation for all this fire activity. Let's hear what Dr. Andrew Huff has to say about this. Dr. Huff is a whistleblower from the EcoHealth Alliance, which you may recall was right in the middle of the Wuhan Laboratory gain-of-function research fiasco with the COVID-19 virus. EcoHealth Alliance was one of the primary recipients of Anthony Fauci's gain-of-function research funding, and Dr. Huff exposed the lies that EcoHealth Alliance was promoting over the funding and their activities. More than 150 firefighters wrapped out 2022 by fighting a massive fire at a large grain storage facility in Hemlock, Michigan. Investigators estimate that the fire destroyed 3 million bushels of corn. No one was working at the time, and no one, fortunately, was hurt. This follows a, a suspicious trend, however, we saw throughout the year of 2022, from Arizona to New York. Last April in Oregon, a fire destroyed the headquarters of, largest, of the largest independent food distributor in the country called Azure Standard. It was a huge fire, but it was just the beginning. Take a look at all of these headlines. Overall, there were several dozen fires across the country last year where large amounts of food were destroyed while no one was on shift. The exact number is unclear, but it's estimated there were as many as 90 food processing plants or farm fires as of last summer. Dr. Andrew Huff says he has a possible explanation for these suspicious fires. Huff said he had government information simulating what would happen if there was an attack on the food supply. It analyzed which food and agriculture facilities were the most vulnerable. You might recall that Huff has been a repeated target by Michigan police and the federal government since he's the Echo Health Alliance whistleblower. Huff says that's why the FBI confiscated those hard drives that supposedly had information on how the U.S. government coordinated attacks on U.S. food supply. Huff believes they dumped this data and is being used to attack American farms and food processing plants. And joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Andrew Huff himself, the Echo Health Alliance whistleblower and the former vice president of Echo Health Alliance. He's also a bioterrorism expert, veteran, and scientist. Additionally, he's also the author of the new book we've been sharing with you, The Truth About Wuhan, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History. Thank you for being here, Dr. Huff. You know, we're always talking about Echo Health Alliance, the, in the COVID cover-up, vaccines, but this is a, a, an also an extremely important issue and one people might not realize you have knowledge on. Tell me how you came by this information or this simulation, these documents, and I, I'll say, but pre-COVID, we saw government entities, NGOs, et cetera, doing simulations on what a coronavirus epidemic would look like. So it's a familiar story, but tell us about you, these documents, how you came to them, and your knowledge of them. Well, you surprised me. I thought I was here to talk about COVID. So sure, let's talk about the food and ag attacks. Uh, so those documents and the, and the, the modeling and simulation. So um, when I earned my PhD, it was sort of strange. So I was actually in public health, in epidemiology, doing infectious disease uh, training in my coursework. But I actually worked at a research center that was national security focused. Bioterrorism and agroterrorism was, was, would be a good way of summarizing the type of work that was done at this research center. That research center was funded by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, one of the conditions of me receiving my PhD or, or what I sort of negotiated is that I wanted to receive a full data set to analyze to, to get through the program faster. You can get through a PhD much quicker if you don't have to collect a ton of primary data. So I really cut down the amount, amount of time 
uh, that would take for me to complete the program. Well, it turns out that the Department of Homeland Security had this data set called FASTCAT. Uh, FASTCAT stood for Food and Agriculture Systems Criticality Assessment Tool. Um, it was developed by scientists at the University of Minnesota, many prominent, prominent scientists there, and leaders in national security um, in, in academia, but then also in partnership with different federal government agencies, mostly at the Department of Homeland Security and other three-letter agencies. Uh, the data set was handed to me, and it was my job to analyze these data to see if there's any flaws in the system or the methodology of how they're collecting these data, to see how if, if the system can be improved, and then see if there are any other trends or, and really just pick this apart and see what we could do with these data. Well, I, I actually published on all this work. So if you were to go look at Google Scholar and type in F-A-S-C-A-T, FASCAT, um, a few articles would pop up. And the United States government with all the different state governments analyzed probably uh, you know, 70 to 80% of United States food and agriculture systems. That includes the facilities, the transportation, uh, the retail distribution, uh, even all the way down to restaurants. So I had all these data. And after I left and uh, completed my PhD at the University of Minnesota, I went on to uh, San Diego National Laboratories where a portion, or a portion of my portfolio of work was actually analyzing these data and then further developing models and simulations to test attack through the system. So really what this, these data were and these models and analysis that I was working on was a roadmap to attack uh, critical infrastructures in the United States. You could even get into power, electricity, of other critical dependent systems or interdependent systems. So um, fast forward to 2019, when I start being harassed by the, the US government and the Michigan State Police, the hard drive containing these data go missing. Then fast forward a, a year or two into this mess and there's been a number of attacks. I think globally there's been probably, I think like roughly around 200 attacks, I'd have to go check. Uh, I, in the United States domestically, I think there's been somewhere between 130 to 150 attacks now. And I actually analyzed the attacks against the most critical systems in my data, in this data set, because I had a backup of it. And it, it's, a, it's a perfect match. I mean, it, it, you run something called a, a t-test on this to make a comparison. And it's it had a T score of I think I think a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand something ridiculous that I had never seen something so predictive or a, such a strong correlation in my life, and I immediately reported this to the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, and this was while the harassment was going on that I was experiencing all the crimes that the government was uh, committing against me. I never received a response back. If you can believe that. Yes, I can believe it, especially if the government is involved in the attacks. Now, Dr. Huff does not have any proof that the government is behind all these attacks, but whoever is behind the attacks has access to that database. And as far as he knows, other than himself, the only people who have access to that database are people in the federal government. We are almost certainly in the early stages of an engineered worldwide famine, and the government of the United States would appear to be in the middle of the engineering effort. It is funding a war in Ukraine that is disrupting over a third of the world's fertilizer supply and about half of the wheat supply. It has produced geoengineering weather modification technologies that can create artificial droughts, as well as catastrophic crop-damaging rainfall, such as has been affecting the California food belt for the past few weeks. It has been less than helpful in resolving ongoing railroad labor disputes that threaten to halt much of the rail transportation capacity, 
and our rail lines are critical to transporting food and food-growing supplies to and from farms across the country. It has damaged America's ability to find, extract, and process oil for diesel fuel, which is used in every aspect of food production, creating a national diesel fuel shortage. It has sent government inspectors out across the country to kill millions of chickens, turkeys, and cattle in vast purges of our food supply, ostensibly to prevent the spread of a disease that has done virtually no damage to these agricultural products. The H5N1 bird flu has set a new record this year, resulting in the death of over 53 million birds in the U.S. However, these deaths are not all attributed to the bird flu. In fact, the overwhelming majority is from proactively culling, the killing of farm animals to prevent an outbreak in the first place, leading many to worry about our future food supply in the U.S. The H5N1 detection and proactive culling has extended to 46 states, according to a report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The report also says that the number of U.S. states affected in 2022 is more than double the number of states that were affected in 2015, the previously largest bird flu outbreak year on record. 1.8 million chickens are to be executed in Nebraska, after already culling 6.8 million farm birds. In Iowa, 15.5 million birds have been culled this year. And in Maryland, recent infections have led to the killing of 24,000 birds based on only 22 samples from 22 birds that tested positive for the bird flu. Although the CDC has tracked the health of more than 5,000 people with exposures to bird flu virus-infected birds, only one positive human case has been reported this entire year. So, the real danger with bird flu isn't human transmission as much as it is a food supply issue. Because millions of farm-raised birds, chickens, turkeys, geese, etc., are killed in mass to proactively avoid an outbreak. But is it worth it? How effective is this method? In the United Kingdom, half of the free-range turkeys produced for Christmas have been killed, 600,000 out of 1.3 million. And the government has ordered a bird pandemic lockdown, forcing all poultry and captive birds in England to be kept indoors, since H5N1 is thought to originate with wild birds. Free-range chicken eggs are expected to run out by March, as supermarkets have already begun gun rationing egg boxes. Because the chickens are being ordered by the government to stay indoors, after 16 weeks, the eggs they produce can no longer be marked as free range. The bird flu has had 257 confirmed cases in birds since October of 2021, growing more frequent in 2022. The number of precautiously culled birds far exceeds the number of infected birds, and even further exceeds the number of deaths from infection in these birds. Again, we are killing our own food supply not the bird flu. If the supposed purpose of the livestock cullings is to prevent the spread of disease that has, at most, killed only a handful of animals, how can the killing of these animals by the millions be considered a realistic solution? On top of that, millions of acres of American farmland are being purchased by billionaires like Bill Gates, a man who made billions of dollars off of the bioweapon that is masquerading as a vaccine. And that farmland is being taken out of active production. At the same time, Europe's largest and most productive agricultural farms are being forced by their own European governments to sell the farmland to the government so that it can be taken out of production to meet their ridiculous climate goals. 
the American government should no longer be considered our friend, much like the government of Nazi Germany should not have been considered the friend of the average German citizen in 1932. There is a looming food crisis that is apparently being engineered by the American government in collusion with other governments, which is something that the churches of America should show some interest in addressing. There is still some time to prepare for the famine that the Bible says is inevitable, and when it happens, it will come to churches with some demonic strings attached. Next episode, we will take a look at what that demonic component might be about because it has some theological implications to it and some scientific ones. Theology was never supposed to be just about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. While that is important, it is also important that we identify how Satan is using the world to attack God's people and help God's people respond to those attacks appropriately and decisively. That's also part of theology. We aren't just to pacifistically give up and do whatever we're told to do by whomever tells us to do things. We are to fight and battle to bring the truth of the gospel and God to the workings of the world and expose the lies of Satan and his minions no matter what the cost. We're going to end with a few notable Bible quotes. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9 Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Arise, for it's your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Ezra 10:4. And finally, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5:11. If there's one thing that the purveyors of darkness in this world hate, it's being exposed by bold, courageous Christians who know their job and take the spiritual battle for the souls of men and women to the world itself. If we act effectively to expose the lies and deceptions of the world, then we will get feedback from the world, not, not good feedback, but feedback, because the world will hate our offensive operations. That's why God repeatedly admonished us to be strong and courageous with our dealings with the world, and we should remember that we were made for such a time as this. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a sign, a beautiful sign, to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including the one you're listening to. But if you get bored with that one, here are some others you can try. Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, and Podchaser. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord, the world is slowly disintegrating into delusion and chaos around us. Help us to do your work by exposing the forces of darkness and their evil, twisted ways. Help our fellow Christians to join with us so that we can battle evil in unity and determination, strengthening each other and encouraging one another. Strengthen our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ and cause us to fix our gaze on the prize 
an eternity with Jesus in his household, in the kingdom, that will never end and will grow and grow and grow in peace and glory forever and ever. Amen. When the food crisis comes, please give us your manna and not the bioweapon booster shot.